3: W.H. Wisecarper, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Wisecarper, a former National Security Advisor and Counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Wise Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit WHWiseCarver.com. This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour, known as the Tom Sumner Program, I guess this hour, um, is uh, a photojournalist and science writer with a new book that explores... or dives into, rather, the plastic crisis in America and explores ways it is grounded in environmental racism. It's called Thicker Than Water. She's called Erica Serino, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Erica. Welcome to the show.
5: Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me.
3: Um, Let me ask a little bit about this. Uh, I have to ask you about the title, because when I first saw the title of the book, Being from Flint, Michigan, I immediately thought, lead in the water right and so how, how did a book about uh, about plastic end up being called thicker than water
5: so there are a bunch of reasons um, Flint actually is mentioned in the book and I do discuss the Flint water crisis so um, plastic is all around us as we know but the plastic around us is constantly shedding um, chemicals and particles that are getting into our air, our water, uh, our food, even our bodies. So thicker than water is a a nod to that, um, but it's also a nod to the many people working on solutions to address the crisis. Um, And I actually witnessed plastic pollution first, most visibly, at sea. So it's a lot of different types of water um, (laughs) involved in this uh, title, but um, my initial feeling was there's plastic in the ocean and that's thicker than water um but of course it goes deeper than that so great to hear that it connected with you as well on
3: first read well that's one of the things about this erica is that i um that i find fascinating is most of us think about plastic as ending up in the ocean and we've read stories and seen documentaries about these big flotillas of plastic you know existing uh, at sea but you talk about plastic production and and disposal and and the pollution that occurs from the production of plastic and and it makes me a little bit concerned because people in Flint and now Benton Harbor have become very addicted to bottled water, which comes mm-hmm. in plastic containers. Right. Is that something that people should be concerned about?
5: Um, well, that's, it's a lot to unpack here. But um, if there is a water crisis, of course, the priority is to get people fresh drinking water. Um, but plastic bo- plastic bottles, and the water that comes in them, um, we have to recognize that the plastic is produced from fossil fuels, and these fossil fuels are processed, extracted, and turned into plastic, most commonly um, within or next door to communities of color, whether that's um, African American, Indigenous, Latinx communities, um, and it really puts these communities at great risk of pollution, not only from plastic particles, but also from the toxic chemicals um, that are released into the air during the production of plastic, and huge amounts of carbon dioxide, which of course is warming a planet that is harming all of us, Um, but it's something to recognize every time we use a plastic item. I don't want to criticize anyone who must buy plastic bottled water for their health um, if they're in an area that does not have access to clean water because Water contamination, drinking water contamination, is a huge problem in our country, um, and people need to be healthy and safe. But we do need to understand that you know it's not great to use bottled water. Um, it's in fact it's it's killing people.
3: Well, that's that's um, what I wanted to ask because there are yeah. two parts of this e- equation. Somebody uses a bottle of you know of water that's contained in plastic. Are there particles that get into the water that you're consuming as what you hope is clean drinking water, and then, of course, what to do about the empty bottle.
5: Of course. So um, plastic particles have been found in bottled water, and actually um, the diets of everyday people have been studied, and people who drink bottled water appear to consume more plastic particles than people who consume tap water. Um, however, there can be plastic particles in some tap water depending on where you live. Um, we do have water filtration systems if we're on the municipal tap. Some do a better job than others, but none have been specifically designed to take plastic particles out of our water supply um, at this stage of the game. So when you have a plastic water bottle, there's something to know about any plastic item, but the plastic all around us, again, it's not just a static item. It's affected by sunlight by temperature by movement um so in the oceans we can see plastic stuff being churned up but that's actually happening to the plastic everywhere um, at whatever pace it may be you know a plastic item sitting on a store shelf is not going to break up into pieces very fast but we're worried about these tiny particles commonly referred to as microplastic and nanoplastic so they're very tiny they're smaller than five millimeters in diameter. Um, so these are really small pieces, very easily ingested, easily inhaled, and they are in so much of the food we eat, so much of the water we drink. I mean, uh, it's very, very clear that, we, that most every person on the planet is consuming plastic um, in their diets and inhaling it as well, but we don't know yet the extent to which that might be harming us. Um, so that's the big question right now.
3: I I can't remember the exact statistic, but I thought I heard somewhere that people were consuming enough plastic to make basically a credit card, but I can't remember over what period of time.
1: Have you heard that I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah.
5: um, And so each year, um, it's estimated that most people, they unwittingly ingest anywhere from 39,000 to 52,000 bits of microplastic in our diet. That's including what we drink. Uh, That's a lot of pieces of plastic, you know, Uh, and whether it's enough to compose a credit card or not, I would just say we should be concerned because that is quite a lot. Um, And again, as I said, if you consume bottled water, and that goes for, you know, any bottled drink, uh, soda, anything in plastic, you will have more plastic in your diet. Um, And you think about when you open, I've seen scientists discussing this with people, when you open foods that are packed in plastic, often that plastic is broken. Um, Some of the pieces are kind of shaving off and um, falling into the food. So I don't want anyone to be, you know, not eating because of what I'm saying right now, but we have to be aware that a lot of the packaged foods we eat do contain plastic, and that's...
3: That's the problem. What are the health risks from that consumed plastic?
5: So plastic particles, um, well, let me unpack this. Plastic itself, there's not one plastic in the world. We have many, many different types of plastic. So there are different types that are used for food-based um, applications, different plastic used for industrial applications. But all plastic, you can kind of understand that it contains some kinds of chemicals. We call them plasticizers, or we call them additives, um, and they do different things. Plasticizers tend to give plastic its char- its characteristics. So is it rigid, is it flexible, is it hard, is it soft? Um, and additives can do anything from adding um, UV protection to color, and these chemicals, which are often fossil fuel based, by the way, so we have to acknowledge just the huge amount of fossil fuels that goes into making plastic, Um, They are toxic, or they um, disrupt our hormones, so endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Um, We're talking about phthalates. We're talking about PFAs, um, which are a class of chemicals that almost ubiquitously contaminate drinking water across the U.S. um, due to their widespread use in plastic and in other um, applications that we've, you know, in material items. So we've basically created this, Uh, chemical minefields, um, you know, uh, all around our planet by using plastic because each of these items is continuously shedding pieces of plastic which contain these chemicals and these particles spread far and wide. I mean, like I said, they can go in our bodies, they are carried in the air. um, And so we have to understand what are the implications of these chemicals completely surrounding us and going inside our bodies. Um, Again, they can cause cancer, they can cause health problems like hormone disruption, um, respiratory issues. I mean, the list seriously goes on and on and on. Um, And, you know, walking through a chemical cocktail every day, what is that going to do to us in the long run? Scientists are not quite sure. Um, And it's important to acknowledge that we do live in an environment where chemicals are rampant for many different reasons, but plastic is a major one. So that's just
3: something to acknowledge. Well, and and we've recently become more aware of PFAS or PFAS, as they're called, right. um, because uh, at least here in Michigan, because of a plant that was producing uh, nonstick cookery in using right. the chemical uh, in their their surface, and and also for uh, fire suppression. Uh, yes chemicals uh, used at the air force base or one of the air right. force bases and so these have been big news stories lately um and and that's just sort of one version of of plastic as as you've been outlining
1: right
5: exactly and and these chemicals are so widely used like you said this has so many applications um but plastic is a primary one and, and you know teflon pans too that was a big one as well um it's a problem. Uh, PFA, PFAS, they're considered a forever chemical. So this is something else that um, is really important to understand: is that sometimes once these chemicals escape, you know, <laughs> because they've been created, they are not going to easily be cleaned up. Um, they could be spread throughout the food chain by eaten by one animal, and another animal eats that animal, and it's just transferred up. Um, and you know, this could have effects on, on multiple creatures, um, including humans. So, something else to understand is, you know, we have to really be more preventative in regulating these chemicals. Um, it's like releasing a monster into the world that you can't get back and put <laughs> put safely away. Um, it's harming people, and it's a really big problem.
3: Well, my, uh, my guest is... Um Erica Serino, she is a journalist and author of Thicker Than Water. We're talking about the, uh, the plastic crisis. And um, Erica, I have to take a break here, I, and I want to talk some more about the, uh, the production of plastic and how that's impacting people in communities, especially um, black, brown, and indigenous communities. Uh, but uh, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more?
5: Oh,
1: sounds
3: great. All right. Uh, again, my guest is uh, Erica Serino, and we're going to let our broadcast partners at WFOV 92.1 LPFM squeeze a few words in, or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. Lots more of the Tom Sumner Program straight ahead. Don't forget tomorrow is uh, armchair politics and um, We're going to have uh, Mark Everson will be joining our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter for tomorrow's uh, Commentary and analysis known as armchair politics.
1: Hello darling, this is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. <laughs>
2: always you you <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you tune in monday through friday from nine to twelve right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. sumner program.com. yo speaking oh dear honey our car warranty is expiring again
6: so soon it just expired last week Visit mi.gov/agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
7: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananik, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of a new book about the plastic crisis and its relationship to environmental racism. Uh, journalist Erica. Sereno joins me by phone. Erica, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around and sorry to make you sit through all that.
5: Oh, not a problem at all. <laughs> Glad to be back.
3: Um, just before the break, I mentioned I, I wanted to talk about, because you talk about how plastic production is one of the culprits uh, creating environmental racism. How so? Is that just the fact that factories are in black and brown neighborhoods?
5: Um, Yes. I mean, in the United States, um, people of color are way more likely um, to be in a community that has industrial development um, than white communities. I visited Louisiana in 2020, right before the global pandemic was declared. Uh, It was March 2020. And I headed down there because I had heard about um, an effort head up by Sharon Levine, um, who is an African-American woman living in a small community called Welcome in the parish of St. James. And St. James Parish um, is one of the river parishes on the Mississippi. And um, it's in these parishes that a huge amount of industrial development has occurred since the early 1900s. So there's so much oil and gas development in that region. And since then, um, huge plastic factories have cropped up all along, um, especially as, you know, oil and gas companies are now scrambling to figure out how to make use of their fossil fuels when uh, climate restrictions kind of put a damper on burning um, gas and oil for energy. So plastic is now the oil and gas company's last resort um, in this (laughs) mission to use up all the carbon reserves on our planet uh, and make fortunes from it. And horribly, um, they profit off of racism and place these giant factories and refineries in communities of color um, for the simple reason is that it's, it's just this huge, huge systemic problem um, that's been going on for decades. And it, it just simply needs to end. So when I visited Sharon Levine um, and her group RISE, RISE is a faith-based activist group fighting for the development of St. James Parish. And they succeeded in holding off a plastic factory um, run by the Chinese company Wanhua in 2018, I believe. Um, So they succeeded then, 2019, sorry. And now they're looking to to keep Formosa Plastic out of their parish. Um, Formosa Plastic is planning to build a $9.4 billion plastic factory, um, thousands of acres of land. And it's on land of a former plantation site, and there are there's evidence that um, it, the formerly enslaved people are buried on that site. So it's not only that they're desecrating this African-American community, um, the, li- the living community, but they're also causing harm to this community's history. Um, they're trying to erase the existence of people living there, um, and that's what Sharon's group told me, um, they're they're upset, they're hurt, um, and they won't stand for this, and they shouldn't. I mean, and we all need to come together as allies, because how can we allow this to happen to other people? It's just very upsetting. Um, but unfortunately, it's happening all over the country. So it's it's really about changing the system when it comes down to it. It can't just be, um, you know, fix one problem or keep one factory out and move on. It's This is a deep
3: deeply ingrained problem. Well, we've become aware of the fact that, um, that highly polluting manufacturing operations tend to be, are almost exclusively relegated to those neighborhoods with Right. certain at-risk populations, whether it's Latinx or indigenous or or African-American, um, they tend to be in those communities, but what is what is the answer? Not producing these materials at all and, and what should we do instead? I mean now that we're aware of of the dangers of plastic and petrochemicals and and fossil fuel emissions and so on um, how quickly can we move away from these things that we know are harming people
5: right so I think to get to the bottom of this answer we do have to go to those communities that are on the front lines because they're actually leading the way in showing us what a better future could look like so Sharon's group rise for example they're calling for an end to continued industrial development in St. James. That means don't add one more factory here um, because they really can't take more risks. There's already 12 industrial facilities in St. James that are polluting um, communities of color. And yeah, they can't, it, you know, it's like no more. So shutting it down by saying no more new development, that would be a one step forward. And then it's, the fact that we have to address the pollution that's already there. And many of these facilities uh, continuously violate Clean Air Act agreements. They violate regulations. Um, I heard actually while I was in St. James from uh, Diane Wilson who she is white. um, She's an ally to Rise who lives in Seadrip, Texas and there's a giant Formosa factory there. So she has been helping St. James uh, get information. She's been standing up and, and attending hearings as an ally because she knows how bad Formosa is, and they do have a track record. Um, there's a new CIEL report that actually just came out, describing Formosa's um, egregious violations across not only the U.S. but also the world, other countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, and and it's it's terrible. And um, we need to look at these communities and say. Okay, we have to stop development. We have to make sure that the factories that are there are sticking to regulations, and then we have to um, start the transition off of fossil fuels and towards a waste-free, circular society—not just a circular economy, economy excuse me—but a society that functions in a way that's um, just and harmonious, and not putting certain people at a greater risk of of dying than others. Particularly when it's so targeted, like and so clear, um, clearly racism in this case. So, it's a lot of it's a lot of work to do. Clearly, um, but again, going to the communities who are on the front lines, making sure they are part of that just and equitable way forward, and helping empower them. I mean, just just making space and listening is really really important right now.
3: But there's, there's a, a domino effect that happens. I mean, you get affluent communities that lobby not to have manufacturing oper- operations in their neighborhoods. They do this with prisons and halfway houses and all kinds of different undesirable things for their neighborhood. So they end up in these um, poorer neighborhoods, often inhabited by blacks, Latinx, etc. Um, but if you get those communities active in preventing production facilities from being built in their neighborhoods, these production facilities have to go somewhere. Um, and, And the reason they have to go somewhere is because people are still, even though they don't want these things in their neighborhood, they're still clamoring for the products they produce.
5: Right, and that's why the transition to a more zero-waste way of living is super important. Um, We have to rethink, you know, do we need plastic water bottles? Do we need uh, plastic bags? And there is low-hanging fruit. I mean, I live in a community that has banned plastic bags, and I don't worry about them. I don't think about them ever on a a (laughs) regular basis, you know, unless I see one on the side of the road, I pick it up. But since they've been banned, it has helped slightly reduce the local pollution, but that's, that's not the answer. But I am, what I'm trying to show you now is that we don't need these items. And I think a big lesson I learned, um, when I was, so a lot of my book is actually spent out at sea, as we discussed earlier on. Um, but living out there so, so simply for, for weeks at a time, um, with no amenities, no place to shop, um, very simple food that we can, we can survive in a much simpler and more fulfilling way if we give it a try. Um, And I think that slowing down and understanding that the lifestyles that many of us live today, not all of us, but many of us live, are very, very wasteful. Um, And, you know, taking responsibility is all about accountability. But it's also about the corporations churning out this stuff and marketing this stuff to us. We have to realize that plastic wasn't here in the 1940s, um, as it is today. It was just starting to be made. And corporations did an amazing job, if we can tell them they did an amazing job of anything. They did an amazing job of selling their products and really allowing plastic to take over the planet. Um, and it's, if you think about it, it's perfect consumer material because you use it once, most of it, many pieces of plastic use one, throw it away, buy another one. So you have to just keep buying stuff. Um, and the idea that you can throw it away is in itself a myth. Um, as we've were discussing before with microplastic and nanoplastic plastic never biodegrades it never goes away. Um, so you can't really just throw it out. it's going to go somewhere and that somewhere is most likely going to either be the natural environment, um, a landfill and those landfills tend to be near again communities of color um, So the same communities, most at risk of getting exposure to industrial pollution are also most at risk of getting exposure to um, the end of the pipe, so the disposal side of things, whether that's an incinerator, um, whether that's a landfill, or um, just an illegal dump or a cycling facility. So we have to really realize that this material that we come to rely on and love so much, it's taking over our planet. And unless we change our ways, you know it's not it's not about convenience anymore it's about survival um, and if we don't do something soon we're going to be in even deeper trouble than we are now
3: well we so ran into a, we ran into an interesting uh dilemma uh in flint at the at the height of the the flint water crisis mm-hmm. and people were using bottled water for literally everything cooking yeah. cleaning washing drinking And there were pallets of Mm -hmm. bottled water on people's porches up and down every street in Flint. Right. Once the water was consumed, there were pallets of empty water bottles (laughs) everywhere. And one Flint entrepreneur came up with a recyclable use for some of that plastic making frames for eyeglasses. Wow. Cool. Which, which was really clever. And in yeah. the short term, we need to be encouraging that kind of entrepreneurship to address the amount of plastic waste that exists, some kind of reuse. For sure. That isn't harmful because it's going to be a long time. Before people will give up yeah. their their disposable uh, consumption,
5: I think I think you're right, and, and in some way, though, I have seen so much change. Um, again, starting in the communities where the most harm is happening. Um, there's a community where I live right now. I'm on Long Island, New York. Um, and out in North Bellport, there's a community, um, they have a landfill. And in it's kind of protest. It's kind of a way to show a new way forward. Um, and they're very vocal about it, which I love, because we need to get solutions out there on the forefront. Um, but this community of North Belport, led by the Brookhaven Landfill Action Remediation Group, small group people, um, they are showing us how we can do zero waste. So the first step in doing that is that their community is doing waste audits. So they're looking at their own garbage, literally spilling out a garbage pail and counting for every plastic item, accounting for every paper item and understanding what we can cut out. Because I think if we don't do that right now and don't stop to reflect, um, it's just gonna keep ballooning this consumption. And I don't think that we need to. Of course, in a public health emergency, you know, we do need to have some kind of way to carry water around, but doesn't have to be plastic water bottles. Um, there's a lot of innovation on the table, and I totally agree with you in terms of reusing um, and innovating. But we do have to reduce; it's critical. And I think if we do, if each of us looks around, I think I bet you we could each do something to reduce our plastic use um, a little bit. But systemically, we need it too. We need the companies to stop. We need demand change um, on a material level? Could there be items that are not wrapped instead of wrapped? That's just a really simple fix. Um, And it's not always about, you know, converting to glass or paper or metal. Sometimes you don't need a wrapper at all. Um, I have friends who are working on projects to get fruit imprinted with a tattoo instead of a a plastic sticker, just so that, you know, a food grade tattoo, so that it can be scanned at the grocery store but doesn't need that little plastic sticker that can't be recycled on it. So it's just these little clever ways to cut plastic out that um, they can go a long way if we all work together.
3: Well, and, and things like uh, shrink-wrapping meat
1: mm-hmm. instead
3: yep. of wrapping it in paper, which was what we used to do and what some places are doing again. Right.
5: Exactly. Going back to the old way, I actually, uh, I met a lot of people in Thailand who told me, oh, we used to use banana leaves to wrap food instead of plastic. And now if you go to a a Thai market, most food is wrapped in plastic. Um, But there are efforts now in grocery stores, a few grocery stores in Thailand I know went back to wrapping things in banana leaves. And it's very simple. You know, we use the resources that we have around us. There are trade-offs. We do need to be mindful of that. You know, we don't want to switch to another material that's possibly even worse than plastic. Um, and that's why re, re, um, sorry, um, removing the plastic, if we can, from any application is always the best idea. But if we can't go without a container, okay, can we use metal, glass, paper? So going down the line. Um, but generally, waste we should minimize and try to reuse everything. That's why it's brilliant to hear about you know, that recycling effort in, in Flint with the um, the eyeglasses. That's very cool. And I've heard a lot of people, and I've met many artists who do that. Um, actually, I work a lot with plastic in my artwork. Um, and it's so widely available, and it's free. I mean, all you have to do is walk down the street, and you can find this <laughs> material everywhere. <laughs> that, <laughs> so
3: it's that's true. It's really brilliant. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Um, how did you... Um, decide to write the book and and what was the research that went into it
1: right
5: so it's been about five years of research going into this book i'll start there and um, it all began when my my boss his name's is carl safina he's a, a writer about nature he was invited to go on a sailing expedition with a group of danish people who wanted to have a writer on board their ship um, and artist Chris Jordan, who depicts plastic pollution and consumption in his work, he's famous for photographing uh, lazen albatrosses on the island of um, in the Hawaiian Islands, who have consumed plastic to the point where, when he cuts them open, it's spilling out of them. Um, and these are deceased albatrosses that he finds and then he photographs um, just to show the enormity of the issue, um, how it's affecting wildlife. So Chris Jordan and Carl Safina. Um, had talked about this trip, Carl declined, and he mentioned maybe I wanted to go. Uh, long story short, I, I sailed into the garbage patch with a group of strangers, came out <laughs> um, <laughs> with a group of friends that are, you know, my best friends I talk to every day. Um, I ended up moving to Denmark to study at Roskilde University. Um, I did independent research for my book, um, under Christian Suberg, who was one of the sailors on the boat. He's a, a great plastic scientist there. And from there, you know, I kept sailing, I kept traveling. Um, and really the pandemic is what ground everything to a halt. But I felt like I had gathered enough to, um, to write this book before then. But starting in the ocean was when I first saw the problem. And the whole goal of the subsequent research and travel was to actually trace it back to the source, and that's why when I ended up in St. James, um, I really felt like I had gone on this journey and really felt like I knew the story of plastics. I had seen so much of it. I don't want to say I've seen it all, but I've seen basically the movement of plastic um, and where it comes from. So the issue of ocean plastic pollution, which has been a hot topic for many, many years now, um it's not so disconnected because i felt like people at the time were saying oh there's this giant garbage dump in the pacific and it really kind of dehumanized the issue i well, mean yeah, that made it seem because, like it was out there because <laughs> our
3: next thought is i didn't put it there
5: right exactly,
3: exactly. I, i've never thrown a plastic water in, or a plastic bottle into the ocean
5: right right I don't litter, that's another thing I hear all the time, and that's why (laughs) I say it's not about littering, it's about plastic itself. Um, And I don't like to put the blame on people. I mean, I think for the most part, I do know that people are generally responsible, they do want to do the right thing. Um, Many, many people email me and call me and text me and say, I walk around my neighborhood, I clean up after people, and... um, it's not always litterers. I mean, litterers do exist, and please don't litter if you do. <laughs> but uh, a lot of plastic just simply blows, rolls, flies around. Uh, I've seen animals carrying plastic around. So it gets, it gets around, and it's not always because of us. It's just because there's so much of it, and there's no place to put it away. And that's a huge problem with plastic.
3: Well, Erica, it's been a pleasure talking with you. My guest is uh, journalist Erica Serino. Her book is Thicker Than Water, talking about uh, the plastic crisis and exploring the ways it is grounded in environmental racism, among other aspects of it. Um, Erica, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can do a a deeper dive on on what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. But are there some good resources for people to uh, educate themselves to um, how bad the plastic crisis is and what can and should be done about it?
5: Yeah, um, well, first I would say thank you for having me. Um, It's been a pleasure talking. Uh, My website has a lot of great resources, ericaserino.com slash plastic. You'll find places to buy my book, but also lots of resources from stories I've written. So I also work as a journalist, so plenty to read. Um, But also another great resource is the Emmy award-winning The Story of Plastic film, um, which was online. Um, It has just newly won an Emmy, so they had been showing it online for free um, for a bit, but uh, that's a great resource, and I think that's, that really shows you the harms that plastic can cause, um, the racism issue, and kind of leading the way to a different future and what needs to be done, so I'd highly recommend that.
3: Well, Erica, thanks so much for spending this time with me, and keep up the good work.
5: Great. Thank you, Tom. Take care. All right.
3: Bye-bye. Bye. That was uh, Erica Sereno. She is... Uh, A photojournalist, science writer, and author of a new book called Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV, Our Voices Radio, 92.1 LPFM in Flint, a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. And if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we'll be back with the final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program, which will feature our Schlocktober pick of the day That for regular listeners know that during the month of October, while everybody is celebrating Rocktober and Shocktober, we celebrate Schlocktober with a different horrible recording each and every day. Stay tuned. There's more straight ahead.
1: Hey, this
2: is The Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to The Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now.
8: Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places,
2: Joe Biden from the Blue Line, Dan
0: Sterling,
2: Congressman Dan Kildee, yeah. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Jonah Bodie, Woodrow Stanley, U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, State Senator Jim Ananik, comedian Brian McCree, the unknown comic Mark Farner, and Tom. I want you to know, Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview
4: all.
6: Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported.
3: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
7: Actually, I did rather well myself this past Christmas. The nicest present I received was a gift certificate, good at any hospital, for a lobotomy. <laughs> rather thoughtful. Now, Now, if I may digress momentarily from the mainstream of this evening's symposium, I'd like to (laughs) sing a song which is completely pointless, but is something which I picked up during my career as a scientist. This may prove useful to some of you someday, perhaps, in a somewhat bizarre set of circumstances. It's simply the names of the chemical elements set to a possibly recognizable tune. Aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, and ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthrum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, and protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, and terbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I knew you would. I hope you're all taking notes because there's going to be a short quiz next period. <laughs> there's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercury, lithium and magnesium, dysprosium and, and, and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum and plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium, metallic, tenesium, titanium, tellurium, and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. <laughs> There's sulfur, californium, infermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and archaea, dandiadrite, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. This was
0: another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
1: Bye.
4: In Memphis I pumped a lot of pain Down in New Orleans But I never saw The good side of the city Until I hitched a ride On the riverboat queen Big wheel Keep on turning Proud Mary Keep on
3: Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program, but what a great lineup of guests. I want to say thanks uh, again to uh, journalist Erica Serino, who we spent this last hour with talking about her book uh, Thicker Than Water that dives into the plastic crisis and explores the ways it is grounded in environmental racism. Before that, we talked with, uh, this was fascinating, Brittany Pete from uh, PETA, and uh, their efforts to uh, relocate some animals that were part of a uh, defunct roadside zoo in Tawa City in northern Michigan. And uh, we started out with um, the uh, executive director of the Adaptive Learning Center in the first hour of our three hour tour. Uh, Charles Shane has written a series of. Uh, books for kids about his oldest son with special needs the books are called adventures with charlie and and it's charlie goes to uh, waffle house charlie goes to school charlie plays baseball fun books and enlightening books in many ways anyway i can't believe how fast the time has gone oh i also wanted to remember <laughs> to mention that we uh we picked on William Shatner a lot last week, and we will again this week uh, by including him in our Schlocktober picks of oh, the day, but today <laughs> today we turn to his first officer, Mr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy, <laughs> singing Proud Mary. And, you know, the whole purpose of, of Schlocktober is while everyone else is celebrating Rocktober and... Um, Shocktober and, and all different kinds of October fest. we celebrate Schlocktober with a different horrible recording and it's one of those things you might love the artist but not so much the song and and maybe not the performance um, and uh, it's it's just kind of a fun thing we do during the month of October here on the Tom Sumner program. Now, tomorrow is Wednesday, which means armchair politics coming up. Mark Everson is going to join our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. And we're going to start out talking with David Rundell, who used to work in uh, the Middle East. Uh, He was... um, worked in the embassy in Riyadh, among several other places. He's kind of an expert on Saudi Arabia. He's going to be with us in the first hour. But uh, have a great day. In the meantime, good night, everybody. Tom
0: Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions.